Hello friends, welcome to the ATC Double Cut. Today I have a special guest joining from the central part of the United States. It is Dr. Bill Kreuzer. Welcome, Bill. Hey, Micah. How you doing? I am doing well. It has been a while since we talked, and I thought it. I've been thinking that I should have you on to the ATC Double Cut sometime. And then I recently was thinking about uh, plant growth regulators and growing degree days and reapplication intervals. And I had some questions. And I I wanted to ask you about it. I did. I I sent an email asking about it. And at the same time, I said, hey, can you join me on the ATC Double Cut to talk about this also? So thank you for fitting this into your schedule. Yeah, no problem. Excited to be here. It's great to uh, listen. So it's cool to, uh, to be a guest. All right. Well, um, you are currently the golf course superintendent at the Agger Junior Golf Club. Is that how it's pronounced? Yep. Jim Agger. Uh Memorial Junior Golf Course. It's a little nine-hole facility here in Lincoln, Nebraska. It's part of the City Parks um, golf courses. There's five courses. Uh, and I get to take care of the par three course. Um, nine holes of Bentgrass, Teach Greens, and Fairways. Um, it's kind of my little playground where we get to really push turf grass performance and, and uh, test some of our theories uh, about how to manage golf for, for the game we all love. Awesome. And you're you're formerly a assistant professor or uh, yep for uh, seven and a half years at the University mm -hmm. of Nebraska doing research in precision turf management studying things like different crop sensors thermal imaging um, but really focused also on managing growth rate fertilizer additions and specifically how we're to use our, our plant growth regulators most effectively it's a line of research that we started back in 2007 to solve a question of how do we manage Primo when you're managing grass, bent grass growing in shade at my parents' house on their backyard putting green. Uh, and that line of questions has led me all the way to here and talking to you. And you also, you're, I saw in your Twitter profile, um, and I'll, I'll show your Twitter, Twitter handle in a bit, but uh, your Twitter profile says you're the inventor of uh, greenkeeperapp.com and I suppose you're a director or or something also it's not that you just invented it and let it go but you also run that greenkeeper app business don't yeah, you? yeah so greenkeeper when I applied for my position in, in Nebraska I said I'm going to if you hire me I'm going to build this application so um, got the job and started to build it and uh, continued to grow it I'm from the little small app that it started off and uh, now it's, it's been continuing to grow. We have a team of six full-time professionals working. And so I'm the president of that company, um, constantly keeping a team of computer scientists um, busy and we're reviewing what they're, what they're working on. So um, it's been really great as we've grown. Um, you know, now I, I'm, I left the university, you know, mainly to run this application. Um, the university said, uh, you know, we need to, uh, to keep growing this. So we actually were awarded startup of the year in 2020, I think from the university. Um, and so that's a big part of what I do is just continue to bring a lot of the science that we all work on together and simplify it into a tool that, um, any turf manager can um, easily use some of the concepts that we talk about, um, collectively as turf researchers. Cool. Wow. That's, that's busy. Did you say it's you plus five other people full time yeah. on Greenkeeper yeah. app? 
yeah, and then we have some part-time uh, research um, um, researchers in the summer help with plot research. We have some interns in the computer science world. Um, I do all the design uh, testing, um, even all the mock-ups. So how does it look? I draw all that out for the, the coders because they do a good job of taking those designs in and figuring out how to actually make it work in a web browser. So um, it's, it's, a, it's busy and I'm also doing sales too. So I'm around the country talking about research and talking about Greenkeeper and uh, helping people get their courses set up. So it keeps me on my toes. Yeah, I I can imagine. I I saw you guys uh you started a Greenkeeper app YouTube channel. And I'm I'm waiting for you to start a podcast because it seems like everybody's doing a podcast too. I so. know. I've I've wanted to do a podcast <laughs> like years ago when I was when uh honestly when Joe Galati started doing his podcast, like I was like, Oh, this is a great idea. Um but then it just people were doing it and I just felt like there's too many of them now. So I feel like I've kind of missed the boat on the podcasting. So I haven't even really tried. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah. I thought I kind of missed the boat on it, too. But enough people suggested to me that maybe people would rather listen or watch rather than read. And so I was encouraged to do it. So I gave it a try. But then I felt like, yeah, it's just like adding one more podcasts to an already crowded field but then even now there's still uh people still continue to do it so i guess it's just survival of the fittest people well, because people have a greens. limited amount of time but i'm mowing greens in the morning to take me an hour and a half so i can do a lot of podcasts just doing one morning task so um you know it's you can quickly fly, fly through a whole library of of episodes within one podcast so maybe there is still some space there yeah, maybe there is. Um, do you, when you listen to the ATC double cut, do you speed it up? Do you listen to it at, at increased speed? Um, I'm usually right at, I usually just push play. I've done it before. I'll listen to like 1.1, 1.2, but it's not crazy. I remember oh, cool. at the university, our professors would, I mean, our students would say, especially during the COVID closures, they would listen to all our lectures at like 1.5 times. Uh-huh. <laughs> So they could fly through the, the lectures. Yeah, so I'm not I, to that level. Yeah, I, I guess with uh, sometimes I listen to my episodes um, just to check the audio quality or to check um, if I if I've forgotten what we've discussed or something. I'll I'll, I'll listen to it again, but I I can't listen to myself at regular speed. Um, I I always speed it up. So I'm I'm. Uh, I'm glad that you can listen to it at regular speed. All right. Well, with this being a uh, double cut, and I put up on the screen your uh, your Twitter handle. It's at PGR Bill, PGR for Plant Growth Regulator. Um, so you can follow Bill on Twitter there if you like. Um, this being the ATC double cut, I think you uh, kind of know the conceit of the show, which is we use some post from the ATC blog as a starting point for the discussion. And... I am bringing up on the screen now, and I'm gonna show this uh, this post with the title, Using Plant Growth Regulators on Golf Course Putting Greens. I will put a direct link to this post and to the article that it's referring to. I will put a direct link to that in the show notes so you can check it out. I didn't realize, but well, I mean, I, I had a, I knew it was a long time ago. Um, and I, I, uh, I didn't quite realize it was 2015 though, but time goes by fast. 
So this is an article from 2015 from the USGA green section record that you wrote. And I thought it was superb. And because I thought it was superb, I, I, as soon as that was published in the green section record, I did a blog post about it. And I said, Bill Kreuzer's it's a, it's, it's a one sentence blog post. <laughs> it's, it's what it, those are the easy blog posts to write. I said, Bill Kreuzer's article in the USGA green section record, effective use of plant growth regulators on golf putting greens is one you'll want to read now and keep a copy handy for future reference. And that was an article that was very impressive for me back in 2015. And I read it again today. Um, I, I hadn't read it recently, but I read it again today and I, I was impressed with, uh, the content. And I wonder if you've read that one recently and if, if uh, if you think it's still useful today, or if you would say, throw it away, there's better articles to read right now. No, I, I did write it years ago. Um, but a lot of the concepts and science there are still, I think, um, top of mind for a lot of golf course superintendents. So um i think it's still very pertinent um there's some just general descriptions of of how these products work and how they manipulate growth rate and then we go a little bit into um some of the scheduling um and then move into some of the plant health aspects so um it's fairly comprehensive uh but there's definitely been some some new work that's came out of this um particularly on maybe some of the, the work with collars and um, mixtures of PGRs or DMI fungicides. That's all of our, our more latest research. Um, so this was kind of our first foray into it, but we didn't even have the, uh, the warm season models done at the time that of writing this. So it was really focused on what we've done from on the bent POA side at, at the first. And, um, and now that's that whole suite of information is expanding. Yes. I, so I, I read it and I was like, okay. Um, like back, back then when it, when it came out in 2015, it was like so cutting edge and it's like, wow, you know, this, this is explaining the, uh, the different types of growth regulators. It's explaining the principles of growing degree day models. And it's explaining the one growing degree day model that existed at that time as far, if I remember correctly, which is just the one for, creeping bank grass and basically a 200 day is it a 200 day reapplication interval yeah 200 zero? growing degree day yeah base zero celsius so it's celsius mm -hmm. scale that that still gets messed up with superintendents um i'll hear people say well i use a base 32 fahrenheit so okay well then you're applying 1.8 times too frequently uh so we wanted to make sure we're in the right unit the right mm -hmm. base temperature uh, the warm season grasses are still in Celsius, but they need a base temperature of 10 because that's when those grasses start to slow down their growth rate. You can see that in your growth potential equations. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have to account for that if we're doing any of this type of modeling. Well, good. Let's. Um, so because that's such a short blog post and we're not going to go through that article because we're going to talk about what's happened uh, since 2015. But uh, I think I will still recommend this article and you would still recommend this article and say it's a good foundational reference for growth regulators and 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 it describes what the plant health benefits are and why you might use what what you could achieve by using plant growth regulators compared 
with not using plant growth regulators, why you might want to use them. Um, and I don't think there's been too much new in the plant health arena with yeah, there's not too much. I think the thing that we've gotten in trouble with is we've struggled or we've emphasized that plant health or the density or the color side so much that we've forgotten the main reason we're using these materials and that's to manage our growth rate and the benefits that they provide by managing growth rate. Um, and so all of those other things are secondary to having the right amount of consistent growth suppression. So a lot of our research since then is what is the right amount of growth rate and how do I use these materials to help us hit that goal? So let's refocus on and not worry as much about plant health. If we're doing the growth rate management part correctly, all of those other secondary things will start to, to come up. Um, but if we're thinking, I'm just going to use this product willy-nilly at high rates or tight intervals to maximize density, you actually might be having a detrimental effect on the plant that could be causing other types of problems. Yeah. Like, like, um, so I'm, I'm not a, a specialist about plant growth regulators and that's why I wanted to talk with you. But, uh, sometimes people will ask me the question, like, uh, you know, I'm doing a grow in, so should I, should I use Primo to speed up the grow in because it's going to make more roots and it's going to make more rapid lateral growth and i'm just sort of like mm, i'm i i think that those those things might happen in a certain case but it's not necessarily going to make your growing happen faster well and gibberellin is so important for a seedling to develop into a mature plant and so i'm not a big fan of using um, even the class apgrs primo and a new um, to try to change those GA levels when that plant is naturally going through a progression of physiological changes to become an adult plant. So I personally don't like using a PGR until you've had, you know, half dozen, dozen mowings onto that stand and it's, it's starting to naturally develop its own tillers. And you have a, you know, stand there that looks like a green or a fairway. Well, then you could start adding those materials um, because you are likely putting a lot of end down so we can we can actually help to promote some lateral growth but i don't want to do it until that stand is, is at a level where it's looking like a stand of turf and, and and not just a bunch of little seedlings all around very good i i agree with you about that and that's the type of advice that i try to offer also now um Let's talk about warm season grass and let's talk sure. about growing degree day models for a while. Um, I guess, um, let's start with bent grass. So you did the research at Wisconsin for your master's degree with growing degree days, right? Is that where that yeah. kind of started with Doug? Solak? Yeah, that, that originally started, I was actually an undergrad. Um, I was embarrassed about the study. So I hit it on one of the research greens until it started working. And then I showed uh, our friend Doug sold out and said, Hey, look at this. I think this is working. Um, so that was back in 2008. And um, then worked on that for my master's, then went to Cornell and primarily focused on Civitas. But I also still had some PGR work happening in Ithaca and it was work, so our models were working there. And then when I got to Nebraska, 
we decided we need to start expanding this to model the performance of all of our different PGRs. So Primo, Trimit, Cutlass, and Anu. And we need to start modeling it on different grass species, but also on different mowing heights because we were seeing different mowing heights effects. And then finally, back in 2017, um, some of our research friends at NC State, Auburn, uh, Tennessee, and Mississippi State all said, we want to work together to do a collaborative study on Bermuda grasses um, and see if we can build similar growing degree day models for Bermuda grasses. So uh, continue to really expand that, that research set. You know, now we're even doing it on DMI fungicides. And most importantly, we also developed a model or a way to understand how mixtures of all of those things are influencing growth rate. So we've came a long way and a lot's happened in the last seven years. Yep. The, how much of this is proprietary and within Greenkeeper app and how much of it is uh, public information? Because like, I know, okay, for putting green height, creeping bent grass, I, and the use of Primo, I know you've published an article or articles that, yep. so that we've are published, public that says it's 200, but we've how published much of, for the, for bent grass with Primo. I think we've also published for Bencrass with Trimit and Primo Trimit combinations. We've also published for the ultra dark Bermuda grasses with Primo and Anu. That was in crop science. Um, so that's the one that that's the article ones. that Eric Razor was the lead author yep. on, and you were yep. the Eric was the, the lead senior author on, on the corresponding on it. Um, but Eric was the the lead in writing it, so it was great for me. I could just design the experiment and did the statistical analysis for them. They did all the hard work of writing it and collecting all those clippings. Um, mm -hmm. But then, yeah, we really learned a lot. So a lot of that is, is in here. And then sometimes the Greenkeeper models, we use meta-analysis. There's a lot of growth studies from the 90s, especially in Bermuda grasses, um, that we can look at what the suppression was, say, in Clemson uh, in the mid-90s, pull the weather records from that time period and try to get an idea of, are the models holding up? And so as we've moved into some of the warm season spaces, we've been able to validate our models based on meta-analysis of, of past research papers. Wonderful. That, so can you share with me, let's go, let's consider potting green turf for mm -hmm. warm season species. And let's, let's talk about Bermuda grass first. Sure. So you, I just had a look, I, I, I read the abstract just before our call and I read the abstract of that razor paper, which was, uh, growing degree days for ultra dwarf. I, uh, if anybody, I'll, I'll put a link to all these articles that we're talking about. This is why I'm going to listen to this, uh, at, at two X speed, uh, when, when we're done and, uh, and, uh, eventually I'll put links up to all these articles. That one said, uh, 216 to 230 growing degrees base 10 Celsius was the predicted reapplication, the, the predicted optimum reapplication interval. Is that correct? Yeah. So we'll say it's around 210 to 220 for Primo on an ultra dwarf green. That same research found that a new lasts significantly shorter on ultra dwarf greens which is interesting because on bent grass, a new lasts slightly longer by, you know, 20% maybe. Um, 
but it's about half as long in, in, a, in a Bermuda grass setting. Uh, setting. Um, the thing I, I wouldn't emphasize too much is the exact interval. That is a little bit of a um, sometimes undue precedence um, or weight can be put on that hard number. What we're trying to do is when you have peak suppression, that's when the levels of the um, PGR on the plant are starting to get so low that the suppression is no longer being held in check by the growth regulator. And so your next application generally needs to be slightly after peak suppression. And so we just normalize it and say, we're going to do a value of like 30% later. Um, so if peak suppression is at 150 at about 200 to 220, that's when the next applications do because at that level, there's essentially no PGR in that plant and we need to reestablish it with a follow-up application. Right. So, so as this is to try to, to, yep. This is to try to achieve that consistent, uh, growth suppression. So when yep. we're, when we're talking about the reapplication intervals and growing degree days for this one with ultra dwarf Bermuda grass, right now we're talking about a, uh, base 10, which means uh, if your average temperature is 30 degrees Celsius, which would be a very hot day in Bangkok, which is about what we'd be experiencing in Bangkok right now, then you'd have 20 growing degree days because you're base 10. So you have to subtract 10 degrees from your average temperature, exactly. right? So if we're at a 220 interval, that's when we are saying you should likely have to reapply. Uh, that would mean that you need to be reapplying every 11 days. That's correct. So I've calculated that. And actually, so in Bangkok, it, it's usually going to be 26, 27, 28 degrees. So uh, it's an 11 to 14 day reapplication interval, according to what that article predicted. However, I, and now, now I want to bring up research that some other people published, which is uh, Brown et al., which is some research by Scott McElroy's group, I think, and some Italian researchers were also co-authors on some of these. Yeah. Um, and that's from Auburn. So they, they used base zero and they also were looking at ultra dwarf. I think they're looking at mini verde. And I just read, uh, those abstracts again from those two papers and they're, they're coming up with a different reapplication interval. So they're recommending 200, 100 to 200 growing degree days base zero which in bangkok is every seven days and so that's like and you're recommending 11 to 14. so i'm a little bit i, I see this research and i know you're doing you're doing additional research about this mm -hmm. i would like you to give some advice because i know some of the people listening here might be in hawaii or in florida or in dubai or in brisbane yep. Or, or places around the world that have warm season putting green turf. And I just, it like, it seems so cut and dried what we should do with bent grass. Um, and the growing degree day models seem really clear. Um, it's not so clear to me what the best practice is for ultra dwarf. Yeah. So uh, talking to Dr. Uh, McElroy and, uh, and uh, Jesse Brown, they, when they did their analysis to, fit their model they looked at different base temperatures and so we did the same thing on the cool season grasses and and when you had a base temperature of zero we had the least variability in our model 
So they did the same thing and they found that zero was slightly better than 10. But then I said, well, how do you account for the spring and the fall? And then they say, well, people just don't put down PGRs during those times. This is only for the summer. So the domain is at a different area. It's, 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 it's subject to what they claim is when you should be regulating the growth rate of Bermuda grass. Whereas a base 10, we still had a lot of good, you know, our data came from three different sites. Um, and Dr. Yeah, Matt, so that was Mississippi, two. Tennessee, yeah, Mississippi. it was Knoxville, Mrs. Starkville and Raleigh. Is that right? Yes. Yep. And then again, it was evaluated again, based on data that came from past papers. Um, and so without having that other paper in front of me to see why theirs was so short, I'm pretty familiar with that work because we, they were asking a lot of questions on how to do this, this research. And so I don't see how recommending a hundred growing degree days base zero for applications in, in the South makes much sense. It seems like a lot of PGR going down. Um, and, and actually from that study, they were applying Primo, um, and a new, I think, definitely Primo at 100 and 200 growing degree day base zero intervals, the way that I did when I first started this research. And they were getting over 95% suppression within a matter of six weeks after they did, did those intervals. So yes, they were maintaining suppression, but the amount of suppression that they were maintaining was incredibly high because they were accumulating, or, or it's like Frank Rossi calls it stacking all these applications on top from each other. So you were, they were able to maintain consistent suppression, but it was also consistent suppression at 85 to 95% suppression, which just is an incredible amount of growth suppression and can be really detrimental to the health of the turf. And what, Whereas what happens our model, to your collars? What that? happens to Bermuda grass collars if, if, if you suppress the, the putting green height turf at 80% for two or three months? What happens to the callers when they get that same rate? That's a good question. We, this last year, we started a modeling study with uh, our friends down at uh, PGA Frisco in Frisco, Texas on their, their Bermuda grass um, driving range tee. And we applied the low to high rates of Primo and Anu. We also included Cutlass for Primadol um, at different rates. And then we did combinations. So we had 14 different treatments. Um, and so we did see, it did seem like that the PGRs lasted a little bit longer um, at collar height than they did at greens height, even in Bermuda grass. We know that happens in the cool season world where um, the PGRs last nearly double as long on a collar than on a green. Um, it's not as substantial on Bermuda grass, but what that does mean is that even if it lasts slightly longer, if we're making applications on the greens height and that same application is more efficacious on a collar, you can more quickly develop really rapid levels of growth suppression that can really suppress growth rate. And one of the interesting things with collar decline and cool season turf is, in addition to the collars being more sensitive, so the PGRs last longer, we get more suppression out of them, they're also growing slower because they're at a higher height. So now we're putting a really aggressive PGR program onto a collar that's growing at a slower rate than the green next to it. And so the absolute growth rate, the amount you'd measure with clipping volume is, is minuscule. You put any kind of wear, tear, traffic 
any other type of stress on that collar, you have collar decline symptoms showing up. Um, so not exactly sure on the Bermuda grass, how much the growth rate varies on say the collar height versus the greens height, are they similar? I tend to think they might be growing at a fairly similar speed, haven't really evaluated that. I do know that collar height on bank grass and POA grows at a much uh, slower rate than greens height. Um, even going green greens height from 120 in a study we did, a two-year study to 80,000s, we grew 50, about 50% 50 more grass at 80,000. Yeah, that was that was crazy. I remember that one. I think you, yeah, that, that, I never would have expected that. So it's, I'm glad you did that experiment. It helped me to understand a lot more why the plant growth regulators would last longer in, uh, in, in collar height turf because it's not intuitive at first because you mm -hmm. think like the grass at the higher mowing height is it's going to have a deeper root system it's going to have more carbohydrates it's going to be a healthier plant you know a bigger plant all of these things and like so i i was thinking that that the plant growth regulator would have more of an effect on the lower height turf but if i understand right it was growing 55 percent faster and so you're actually just mowing it's growing faster and then you're mowing off more of the PGR. And yep. in, in for it to be growing faster means it needs to make more of that hormone gibberellin. So it's going to take a higher effective dose to suppress all of that production. Where mm -hmm. grass, it's growing at a slower, it's at a more ideal leaf area index, a more happy mowing height, we could say. It's not making as much of that gibberellin. So it's easier for the PGRs to suppress that growth rate. So all those factors together. Another factor too is the grass at greens height is hotter in a thermal image than the higher height grass. So the metabolism inside that grass is going at a greater rate. So there's all these factors that are leading to these differences in, in PGR uh, performance um, that can be related to so many different aspects of management and in uh, and, and culture. Okay let's let's i've got a lot of things that i want to talk about um and you provide so much insight about let's let's wind up with bermuda grass for now sure by by saying for if we just want to have consistent suppression and let's assume that our our, our growth rate is the way we want it so our, our clipping volume is the way we want it and and the grass is healthy what type of growing degree interval would you recommend for an ultra dwarf Bermuda grass putting green for reapplication of uh, Primo? For Primo, I would firmly be on an interval around 200 to 225 growing degree days. That does give you a little flexibility, even in Bangkok, whether we might be plus or minus a calendar day. And mm -hmm. so I think that's one thing I want superintendents to know is just because the model goes off and says you have to apply on Sunday, you can probably stretch it out to Monday. You might lose a little bit of suppression for a day, but it's going to go back. Yeah. Um, it's only if you go, if you're off by three, four, five days that you can, in either direction, either have an increase in suppression or a substantial reduction. So target that 200, 220 growing degree days for Primo. If you're doing a new, it's around 100 in 20, 130 growing degree days, somewhere in that interval. But again, there is a little flexibility in there to be, uh, you know, plus or minus a day. 
and if and if you want to start mixing PGRs and accounting for your fungicides that would have suppressive effects and so on, it gets complicated enough that you really just want to use the Greenkeeper app, right? Yeah, it does because when you start when you start mixing PGRs, it's an additive effect. So if you're getting 20% suppression today from Primo and 30% from a new, you're going to get 50% combined. If you're getting 10% suppression from Densicore, then you're going to be 60%. And obviously you could get to a number that's greater than a hundred percent, which is impossible. You can only PGRs and gibberellic acid induced growth elongation is represents about 95% of all the growth rate of our grass. So that's kind of our theoretical maximum. And that's actually been measured with really high levels of PGRs and say the most suppression you're going to get is an average of 95% maximum. So, so what we're able to do in Greenkeeper is do a plateau, linear plateau model. It just accounts so that as the suppression values start exceeding 100%, well, then that means that you have 75% total suppression. If you have 150% combined suppression from all those stacked up applications and DMIs and everything, well, that equates to 85% suppression. And finally, when that totals around 200, then you've really shut down um, all elongation growth and you're at that 95% suppression. So Greenkeeper does take all those different things and then show what the, how they're all working together. Tell me that again. The maximum suppression you can get is 95% in reality. So, yeah. so we're talking about like your, your dry matter yield would be 5% of the control if you completely shut down gibberellic Acid yeah, production. you're still getting cell division happening and some level of elongation, um, right at the base with the crown. But then most of our growth rate is a result of production of this hormone gibberellin. Um, mm -hmm. And so if you eliminate gibberellin production, the leaves are still growing, but it's just through basal cell division and pushing up of new leaves as they're dividing out of the crown. It's the it's that elongation growth that lets those small cells balloon up to be their full size um, and so that's the theoretical maximum and it's not a theoretical it's something we've measured in greenhouse and in the field and you always come to about 93 95 percent is is your average and you get to the era of, of you know collecting clippings at that point too so you know getting exactly there hard to say but you that's, have that's when, when you do that and you basically stop the grass from growing is it is it is it yellow at that point? Or uh, no, not necessarily. Um, but if you put any type of environmental or other type of traffic stress on it, then we can we can start to see um, really bad problems. I think on the warm season side, it goes yellow. On the cool season side, it gets this dark bluish brown hue to it when you have that level of suppression. And even at that level, you start wondering, are we affecting other things in the plant um but you you'll definitely see that it looks kind of bad um we did a, one of the first studies we did on cool season athletic fields in 2009 we suppressed pretty much all vertical growth those plots looked brown but if you got on your knees and looked at them it was brown because the leaf tips were so sheared by the mower constantly hitting them and damaging them but 
it wasn't able to grow up enough between mowings. So the mower just kept hitting the same spot. It's kind of like having too high of a real speed on your greens mower and you're beating up the tissue. Mm-hmm. But then down lower, the grass was real dark and green. Um, but it just, you put any traffic on that plot, it's not going to recover fast enough. It's going to go away. Wow, I'm learning a lot. I hope the people watching and listening are are also able to follow along and and can learn. I, I suppose that anybody who's who's listening to this conversation is a turf grass professional and somebody who's quite interested in this topic. So I suppose you're learning just as much as I am. Now, Bill, let's move away from talking about Bermuda grass. And I'm gonna start talking about Paspalum and Zoysia putting greens very soon but but let's talk about uh growth rate in general and and about how as i wrote in the introduction to my short grammar of greenkeeping and i think the first chapter was also about growth rate it mm-hmm. uh it it occurred to me uh at, at some time in my career in fact i think i remember when it was it was in 2010 um i i realized that getting the growth rate right was really important because if the grass grows too slow, we have all kinds of problems. If the grass grows too fast, we have all kinds of problems and things like adding irrigation, adding fertilizer and, uh, and that, and adding plant growth regulator, they're all done to adjust the growth rate of the grass. But really the overall goal is to get the right growth rate. And so I think, We've been talking a lot about PGRs. They could be used like this. They should be used like this. If you're using it, trying to get consistent suppression, we should like do exactly this many growing degree days and, and, you know, plus or minus, you know, some, some leeway. And we talk like this, but, but actually I think that you would also say that the primary thing is to get the right growth rate. And if you've got the right growth rate, you may not even need to use PGRs. Yeah. So can we can I hear your perspective on that? Because I've actually been more and more seeing that around the world of people just applying plant growth regulators on a calendar schedule. People still apply on a calendar schedule sometimes, or, or they apply on a growing degree day schedule. And they're so concerned about applying according to a model or applying according to the way they think they should do it, that I think they're losing maybe they're uh, missing something when they could just be using it as a tool. So I, I would like you to tell me your thoughts on, on the best way to use it and how it's linked with growth rate. Sure. So I obviously at, at our par three course, we manage our turf with different PGRs, uh, even across different greens. Um, we have 10 greens on three different PGR programs. Um, the, the collars are on different programs. The roughs and surrounds are on different programs. Um, I think the PGRs definitely have a, a good benefit to elicit a lot of these secondary benefits, increased color, density, uh, plant health, annual bluegrass control for my neck of the woods with something like a trim it. But we want to make sure that we're doing it. Um, we're trying to, to figure out how much suppression we, we need at any given time. And if I don't have clipping volume, I don't really know how I make schedule any of my PGR applications because we need to think about primarily 
are using these materials to help us hit a growth rate target. At my course, it's between one and 1.25 liters per hundred square meters or quarts per thousand square feet, whatever unit you're comfortable in. In that if, if I'm there, I know that my, my greens are performing well. I'm still getting my green speeds plus 10 feet, um, but I'm recovering from ball marks. We have 26,000 rounds, mainly in the summer on one acre of greens. It's a lot of ball marks. It's a lot of wear. If I go lower than that, the greens are going to run 12 feet. And they can do that for a few days. I do that for a couple of weeks. And then all of a sudden, you're going to see the, the wear and tear on that turf. So there is this optimum. So two years ago, 2021, I went in and said, let's just regulate these greens really aggressively, 80% suppression or more all season long. What I noticed is I needed a lot of fertilizer to keep my growth rate high enough with that much suppression to manage um, that value of one to 1.25. And it was really not a, a really efficient way of managing because I was putting a lot of product on the suppressed growth, removed um, a little bit of clippings over the course of the year with that suppression, um, but I needed three and a half pounds of N to, to support that growth. And um, when I did the end of the year calculations, I removed about 200 quarts of clippings, which is around three quarters of a pound of nitrogen. So I put down four times more fertilizer that year than I took off. That's just, where is that fertilizer going? It's sitting in the soil. I saw an increase in thatch accumulations. I have to cultivate more now. I need to top dress more. So last year, we just said, let's simplify this system. We're going to fertilize whenever the grass is giving us indication that it needs more fertilizer. Is it thin? Are we seeing moss and algae? Is it slow to recover? Is the color not right? You know, then I'll change my spoon feeding rates. But then I'm going to use my PGR program kind of is a, almost a separate thought. Like I'm going to fertilize first and then looking at my seven day average growth rate, if I'm seeing values closer to two, well, then I want 50% suppression. If I'm seeing values closer to three, I'd want 65% suppression. So I'm trying to look at what's my growth rate right now and then figure out how much suppression I need. And I do that by either using different rates of a PGR, mixing PGRs together or mixing PGRs with DMIs. And so I'm really flexible. I'm scheduling my applications based on growing degree days because I know that the duration of the material, the PGRs, is, very, is really correlated to air temperature. So I know when it's going to wear off. The question I have with every application is how much suppression do I need? How hard do I need to push that brake pedal? So in taking and that approach last year, my system became much better, much more balanced. I put down about a pound and a quarter. I removed around a pound and a quarter. All of a sudden, you know, that seemed to be a much more efficient way of managing our turf. And I didn't see the rapid thatch accumulation in that, that top surface inch either from putting four times more fertilizer down than I was removing in my, my mower bucket. Yeah. I, I think this mass balance approach of trying to figure out what's happening with everything, um, is something that I do a lot of. And, uh, I know Doug's been working on that. You're doing that. We're all kind of approaching this from our own way. And we kind of come to the same conclusion that it just sort of makes sense to have the right growth rate and to apply the amount of nitrogen fertilizer that will achieve that and apply the amount of sand top dressing that's necessary 
in order to um, to keep your organic material in the top of the root zone relatively constant, um, assuming that you're in a in a good place with the organic material. So, it's a good um, sh shout out to our late uh, late great Dr. Wayne Cousseau, who was talking about this in the '90s: nutrient demand, nitrogen-driven demand in turf. And uh, here we are still trying to figure this, this out and, and, and optimize these applications. To, so, yeah, that, that is correct. He, he would have been great to talk with about this. I know you and Doug got to spend a lot of time talking with him and, and there's a lot of wisdom there and a lot of knowledge, um, that we, uh, yeah, it's sort of like we're reinventing the wheel or something because, uh, this this kind of stuff should be just simple right it's like like what you just talked about like you, that you have better growth rate and then your nitrogen uh up harvested relatively match the nitrogen applied it's like shouldn't that be the goal every year but we we haven't typically thought about that because i know like what i remember from from going to turf school or going to seminars you you typically would learn something like this grass responds well to three pounds of nitrogen per thousand square feet per year or something. It's never talking about what your grass in, and it might be in a shaded side or, and it might be in a very rich soil, or it might, it might be a 40 year old Kentucky bluegrass lawn that has a high amount of organic material at the surface. And so all of those situations would, would mean that you should adjust your nitrogen supply based on how much growth you're getting from that lawn. But instead we come at it, we, we his, I feel like when I was younger in my career, I would have come at it with more of a brute force approach. Like I used to do with the organic matter management as recently as 2014, I was just giving a blanket statement recommending that everywhere, um, should be removing 15 to 20 percent of their surface area by coring per year replacing that with clean sand and applying from 12 to 15 millimeters of sand top dressing per year which is 50 to uh sorry 40 to 50 cubic feet of sand per thousand square feet which is a tremendous amount of sand as recently as 2014 i was just recommending that everywhere and the usga green section published an article in 2016 that continued to recommend that and now they published an article in 2019 that cut that back slightly but now i'm saying let's do it in a site specific way and i think with like with fertilizer i used to be making a brute force approach now i don't with sand i used to make a brute force approach now i don't and i think with this whole growth rate thing the clipping volume has just turned out to be so useful i thought i would get laughed out of the room when i started recommending it and i know a lot of people did laugh uh, and some people still do laugh, but, uh, it turns out that it's just so useful to know how fast your grass is growing because it leads to improved turf conditions and it leads to better control of a very challenging job, which I know you as a golf course superintendent and as a business owner and boss and, uh, and scientists and so on, like being a golf course superintendent is not a part-time job right i mean it's it's no. it there's there's a lot of work to do and then you're doing another job on the side and in the winter you're going around doing a lot of speaking and and conference appearances and and so on and trying to do research so i i can't imagine how busy you are with all this stuff and something like clipping volume it, it becomes an essential tool I, I i look at it every day i go into greenkeeper even on my my days off 
I wake up in the morning, I pull my phone over, log into Greenkeeper, and I see what my growth rate is from the guys at work collecting clippings that day. And I know you've done a lot of cool things, Micah. MLSN is obviously revolutionizing how people are fertilizing. I think clipping volume might be your greatest research angle or, or, or idea that you brought that's going to have real important impacts on, on turf because it's the first time that we made this connection that, that you can measure something that seems crude, but it's related to so many aspects of agronomy, not just what the soil levels are, but, you know, um, disease and wear and, and fertility levels and turf grass performance. And they're, they're all linked back to this idea of how much growth do you need? And then you can apply that to optimize things with, with MLSN and, and try to figure out, well, how much of these nutrients do you need at different ratios from a plant need perspective and removal and I, I, it, it seems to me that it's just a really powerful and really simple tool of all the things that we measure <laughs> it's really i use a red body spill pail the uh, bucket pail that's like three gallons but it has lines on the inside at one quart increments and i just hang it off my triplex and i collect it from three greens my most sunny green my most average green and my most shady green um, from the center bucket every single day. Okay. And it's just amazing what you can learn, even just how the sunny green compare, grows relative to the shady green and how mm -hmm. you can see the shady green is growing 50% faster for the first half of the summer. Middle of the summer, it's the same. And then late summer, it's growing 50% slower. And so there's an example where in the spring, I will sneak extra PGRs on that shady green to help suppress that growth rate compared to the other greens. And then later on, uh, when it's summer and that grass is now struggling because it's burnt all of its sugars up, I'll maybe pull the trim it out and I'll just do a new by itself and get instead of 60% suppression, 30% suppression. So I'm just taking that little bit of stress off. That one simple one minute measurement is allowing me to better manage my turf and keep my grass on the green at the end of the summer under a shady environment. And so, so that just shows how, how, how important and, and worth that number is. Yeah. It, it provides something that uh, turns out to be way more valuable than I ever would have thought. And I was aware of this a long, long time ago. Uh, I knew that people were measuring this. We were measuring it when I was a golf course superintendent in Japan in 2000. And, and I'm not one for busy work and I'm not one for, collecting data that I can't make use of. And back then, all I cared about was dry matter yield. And I knew that that I was never going to dry the clippings. And why would you want to anyway? And I thought like the more grass that was growing, the healthier it was, the better. And I would just cut it short or cut it more or roll it more in order to get green speed. I wasn't thinking that if you could really suppress growth back in 2000 and have it growing really slow, it, it wasn't all connected for me. And I think as I, as I traveled around the world and saw more and more grasses in different growing environments, some, something clicked where I realized that growth rate is just like critically important. And when you see so many problems, they're often problems are related to the growth rate not being right. And yep. uh, yeah. And so. it, like you said, it doesn't always have to be having too much growth rate can be just as problematic. Like that shade green that just, it literally is growing itself to death. That plant only has so much carbohydrate load. And when you get to the heat of Nebraska summer, um, it can only go so long. See, you see the same thing in Raleigh. I mean, the bent grass in Raleigh on greens would grow great until end of July. And then all of a sudden, uh, 
you'd start to see the Bancraft screens failing. Well, mm -hmm. it, it grew, it grew, it grew. It loved that warm weather. And then it was out of sugar. It was a dandelion that was sprayed with 2,4-D that just grew itself to death. Yeah, and that that's... same concept is happening on our, our grasses. And so optimizing growth rate can mean that we can stretch out how long is it going to be able to make a stressful summer period. Right. So that's one of the health benefits or the, uh, one of the benefits that you would see from using plant growth regulators is is you're able to allow grass to survive str heat stress for a longer period of time. Um, exactly. Because it's not burning up all of its carbohydrates. Yep. So it's a mass balance approach. <laughs> so, <laughs> All right. Now, I haven't seen any papers about uh, PGR intervals, growing degree day intervals on paspalum greens. Yes. It's because they don't exist. Okay. Um, How about zoysia greens? So let's talk about paspalum and zoysia greens, which are, are a thing. And mm -hmm. um, what what does Greenkeeper app tell me if I have those kind of greens. Yeah, the numbers in there aren't going to be as precise as we would like them to be. Um, sometimes you just have to look at whatever data source you can get. Sometimes it's proprietary from talking from people in the manufacturer side to say, you know, this is generally what we recommend and we can kind of back calculate what that should roughly be. But we need to do the modeling. Uh, we've done, we finally are, are completing the modeling for Bermuda grass greens and fairways um, still need roughs. Um, I think it's going to come down to finding um, facilities out there that have zoysia grass fairways, zoysia grass greens, past palum greens, um, so that we can work with them, especially if they have a nursery green, to at least evaluate a, a couple PGRs. Um, we, did, we did this with PGA Frisco last year. Um, it works pretty well. We fly out with our um, equipment, we line out all the plots, make all the apps and the guys down there did a fantastic job of collecting the clippings and then sending them up here, um, where then we, uh, we weigh them and clean them and, and do the modeling. Um, but that's a little bit of the approach that we're going to need is, is to, um, find courses that have Paspalum or Zoysia that are in interested in having us out. Um, the other tricky part of that is they need to have a drying oven. Um, so PGA Frisco have a drying oven. They like to, um, sieve out their sand they get from their top pressing supplier before they sign off on it. Um, and for the delivery. So they already had a drying oven. So that really helped with the process. Um, it's going to take about 30 to 40 minutes a day for a small study, um, three to four times a week for a period of about a month to six weeks. So it is a labor commitment. Um, to get those numbers. But if there's anyone out there that wants to help us, like the PGA Frisco data now, that data is the data set that Greenkeeper is using. So if you're a Greenkeeper user, uh, you would know that the models we built are modeled from your golf course um, to kind of help us to, to figure uh, some of those, those aspects out. Well, uh, I think more large scale with managing growth rate, we're working to um, integrate the... Uh, um, Doug Soldat's machine learning models to predict um, grass growth rate at your own course. And so mm -hmm. over time, the estimated amount of suppression coming from Greenkeeper is just another metric that the machine learning models can use so they can help optimize site-specific models um, based on all kinds of factors. So that's going to really help 
get to the, the broader point of um, how much suppression do you need? How long do these, these products last? That would just be another important variable in that complex model. And um, we can't wait to, to get that um, released here this summer. Cool. That, that's the machine learning that you're talking about. Yep. So even if Greenkeeper's prediction says that you have 50% suppression on past Palum today, and it's really 30%, um, through repeated measurements of clipping data, it's gonna re, it kind of recalibrates itself. It's the same idea as your soil moisture meter. If you're constantly, if it's saying it's 20%, but it's really the true value is 15%, but you're at least managing with that consistent number from your moisture meter, even if it's not precisely accurate to what the, the amount of water in the soil is, as long as it's the same every day, then you can still use it to make management decisions. Okay. I, I think I, I sort of understand about that. So if you're, if you're tracking the clipping volume, then that's going to, it's going to tell you how you're deviating from normal for your site based on, yep. because it knows your weather and it knows how much clipping volume, clipping volume you've been getting for certain types of weather. And so it, it's then going to know what your relative suppression is. Exactly. So even if it thinks it's a 30% factor and it really might be more or less, it will start normalizing to, to, to account for that, um, which then will help with the recommendation for the PGR rates and intervals. So that's, that's a longer what play, um, you know, right now we're, we still would love to, to develop some ground truth models, the, the old fashioned way of collecting clippings and weighing thousands of them a year from each site um, to just get a good rough number, but so that that number in Greenkeeper can be as close as possible. And then the machine learning will start to uh, to pick up on subtle differences that are site specific. How, how close is clipping volume to dry weight when you run a regression on that? It's pretty good. I think we've done it with your data. We've done it with Doug's um, data. I don't know the number on the top of my head in terms of an R squared value. You do get into, um, what is it, the law of big numbers. So if you have the you have the days that are higher due or less due, if you collect 200 measurements um, over the course of that season, you're going to start falling to whatever that mean number is. So the more that you're sampling with, with consistency, and just like any kind of data collection, I don't care if it's soil testing, moisture meter, clipping volume, Green speed, it's all about consistency and sampling, sampling the same way, the same site, same interval. Then a lot of that noise starts to center around what the true value is. And so we can start to zero in on, on what that is simply by doing um, regular sampling. Yeah, I think it, it works out really good on the average, but it can be all exactly. over the place. Uh, I just wonder whether you couldn't do this type of uh, study to because I've thought that we could do something good enough to check like uh, zoysia fairways um, by doing a whole bunch of sites and just looking at clipping volume so we don't ha actually have to weigh anything. You know, and, yeah, and, and we're trying and to try to figure trying... out the duration of of the effect or the duration well, of the suppression. That, that's uh, the, the sensor mounted um advancement is a way to help do a pseudo clipping volume. I think clipping volume on a green or an infield of a baseball field is, or maybe, maybe even within like a 10 yard line stripe on a football field or whatever you want to have for your standard 
measurement area, that still is the gold standard, even though it might seem a little crude. Um, again, we average across a seven-day average is what we recommend, or look at a cumulative clipping removal as from a yearly basis, then that number is a lot more actionable compared to the day-to-day -day number. When you go to these larger areas like outfields or large soccer fields or even um, fairways, we think that the some of these different sensor technologies, mower-mounted sensors, active sensors that have their own light source, so you can do it, make measurements at night and dawn during the peak of the day, get a repeatable number out of it. That will at least give us a better indication of estimate of, of what the growth is over a larger area. And so I think that they they kind of complement each other. Clipping volume is the best. Um, sensor data is a way to collect a lot of of geospatial data to get an estimate of what growth rate is um, on broader areas. This is fascinating. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the problem that could happen if you apply at the, let's say you're applying at a perfect rate. And so let's say that, that, uh, I'm getting a clipping volume of 20 milliliters per square meter, which is two liters per hundred square mm. meters, which is approximately two quarts per thousand square feet. Um, so let, that's my clipping volume. That's my growth rate. And I, I think, you know, that's a little bit faster than I want. Let's say it's peak season. It's the middle of the growing season. And that's a little bit faster than I want. It, it's, it's a little bit more clippings than I want. So I decide that I'm going to apply growth regulators with an objective of having 50% suppression. And so that's the type of rate that I target. And then what if I get it all wrong with my reapplication intervals, however, and, and I do what Dr. Rossi calls stacking or what you, what, what do you call it? Do you call it stacking? Yeah, I just, I've just taken his uh his so, nomenclature here yeah, stacking is fine uh um you know the the crude example we give is uh is kind of like uh drinking alcohol if you're drinking it faster than your body is um breaking it down it's going to accumulate in your in your body and, and you're gonna get a little drunk and so i don't care if you're drinking um big shot glass like a you know, shot glass of beer it's a small quantity but if you're doing it every minute it's still going to be accumulating in your body and you know, you're going to lead to feeling a little bit tipsy. Um, if you take that same approach where if I'm using Primo at two ounces, even though it's labeled at five ounces, but I'm applying it too frequently, um, two ounces becomes four, becomes six, and you just keep uh, adding more and more active ingredient to that plant. And therefore, the effective dose is greater. A two ounce rate of Primo on the Bermuda grass green versus a four ounce rate of Primo lasts the same amount of time. So if you're going out and saying, I'm going to put two ounces down and three days later, put two more ounces down, you might as well have just put four ounces down at one time because it's, that's essentially how much is going to be there. And it's going to last for, for a, a pretty long, you know, two to three weeks, depending on the weather, you know, two weeks in the Bangkok, uh, weather you talked about at the start of the, the podcast here. So the, and you talk, you visit a lot of, uh, turf grass sites, you do consulting, you, uh, 
you speak at conferences and you uh, exhibit at conferences and you talk to a lot of turfgrass managers. How common do you think it is that people apply plant growth regulators too frequently? I think it's pretty common. Um, I think we're seeing a lot of that on the Bermuda grasses in the southeast where we're having weekly intervals, uh, even through the winter uh, with the cooler weather. Um, it's a little harder on the cool season grasses to generally over apply. Even if you're applying weekly when it's summer, that might be a pretty correct interval. Maybe it's 10 days. And if you're doing seven days, that's not that big of a deal. On the other side though, I see a lot of issues on the cool season world where uh, in the spring they'll do proxy, proxy and new or proxy primo. They'll throw in Balaton or Banner Max for some DMI fungicide. Then they'll start doing a week later, they'll come out with some trim it and then trim it in a new. And then next thing you know, you've made four applications in the matter of three weeks when it's really cold. Um, and you can easily have 70% suppression and that bank grass doesn't want to grow. Um, and even in that scenario, that can actually favor POA because now the bank grass is just breaking dormancy. The POA is already going. So yeah, the POA is being suppressed by 70%, but so is the bank grass. And so that bank grass that's growing at essentially nothing is really growing at nothing. The POA that was growing is still, still growing. It still has an ecological advantage over that bank grass that's trying to green up. And so I don't like doing too much suppression early spring and late fall because you actually can favor annual bluegrass that way. Um, and then I think on the, the warm season side, we just see these weekly intervals that are just too tight when we should be closer to a two or sometimes three or four week interval on these materials that can lead to stacking and can really be problematic and, and, and quickly result in 85, 90% growth suppression. What, so what? I think the, the knee jerk reaction is then to fertilize more on the bentgrass green side. Let's fertilize more in the spring to get that bentgrass growing. Okay, that's helping the bent, but it's really helping the POA. It's again, exacerbating the problem or the, the ecology is backwards. Or from the Bermuda grass side, now we're putting down two, three, four times more fertilizer to get it to grow at that acceptable rate to be able to handle all the traffic that that turf is under. Um, and so we're trying to fix a problem with another problem that could be leading to thatch accumulation or require more cultivation and potentially has you know, negative impacts on our groundwater and surface water. So we don't want the PGRs and the DMIs to be the problem. Let's let them be the tool um, to help us hit goals. And so the first part is having some, some goals to try to manage towards. And, and that might include playability measurements and it might include growth rate measurements. Yep. Is, is exactly. that what you mean? Yeah. Gonna... So we, we have those three greens. We stimp every day from three, the same spots on every green. And we do um, clipping volume every day from the same greens. And then we make our adjustments as to, do we need to double mow? Do we need to roll more? Do we just roll? Um, and then we can decide about top dressing rates. If it's a high clipping volume week and we have to top dress, we'll do a little more sand. And then we'll just schedule our, our PGRs uh, to follow suit if we need more or less. But we're still using it to hit a goal and we're not just applying these materials haphazardly. I have a question about visual symptoms of over-regulation of, 
80 or 90 percent when you'd rather have 50 percent so you mentioned that this does happen it might might be a little bit more common on on warm season grasses and you said on on cool season grasses i think you explained it pretty well that it's more of a problem in spring and in autumn and you might be having poa annua that could compete well against yeah. bent grass if you over apply um i was curious about with ultra dwarf bermuda grass greens what would some visual symptoms be of of this effect so for both there's two types of um negative uh visual quality results from these pgrs for both warm and cool season if you go out with a, an application by itself um, and there's no past applications or prior applications that is the higher risk of seeing a yellowing bronzing phytotoxicity so um, i don't care if you're using trim it or primo or a new if you come out and just do a full rate there's a higher likelihood of seeing a problem than than if you work your way up so if if you use a low rate of trim it say at four ounces per acre and go up to 16 ounces per acre I'll never see Fido out of that approach. But if I came out and did a 10 ounce per acre rate in the middle of July without that preconditioning, then I'll see this, this, this Fido that's more of the yellowing. We see the same thing in our research plots that Jim Kearns had a pretty good, uh, one of their applications. We saw this, this, um, this, this, this yellowing, this bronzing color uh, after they're a new and their primo applications and the first one, and then subsequent applications, you didn't see it as bad. So, that's your kind of chronic or I mean your acute phytotoxicity more of a chronic type of phytotoxicity is you see segregation the bent grasses and the poas get this real like blue sunken brownish hue to it the bermuda grass you know there's some research searchers thinking that some of the the segregation issues that they're seeing with the different um, patches within the greens off types they also may be a result of these really aggressive PGR programs. And then some of the pathologists are even suggesting that some of these newer diseases, especially in the spring and the fall, when the Bermuda grasses don't want to grow, but we're still on weekly intervals, can be leading to different types of, of root diseases, maybe things like take-all root rot, um, or these the pythium outbreaks we're seeing now. Um, how much of that's related to, to over-regulation? And that's Still, their hypothesis hasn't been really tested yet, but those are some of the chronic challenges that can occur from, from too much suppression. Okay, thank you very much. And I would speculate also that um, if, you, if you get the growth regulation wrong and then you also apply nutrients way out of whack with the time of the year that the grass can use it, I think and this is pure speculation and I'm not a plant pathologist, but I, it scares me. I mean, I wouldn't manage my grass that way because I would be afraid that I'm feeding the fungal diseases. So it's like yeah. you're suppressing the grass, you're over fertilizing with all kinds of, uh, of nitrogen and, and other things. And at the times of the year when the grass can't use it, that to me is a, is a scary thing. And it seems like, I mean, it, it's something that I speculate would possibly lead to increased diseases. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we think about things like pythiums and rhizox, those are generally high fertility type pathogens. And so you could see how you're suppressing growth of the plants, potentially not up to full 
potential to uh, to grow through. And then we're also putting so much fertilizer down that might even be favoring these pathogens to be a little bit more competitive than they would be in a native natural environment. Um, so just kind of some curiosities there that I think we need to keep looking into. Yeah, wonderful. Well, we've talked about almost everything on my list of PGR okay. bill. Uh, but but while while I have you here, I've, I've got a question about seed head suppression, especially on on zoysia. But I know there's seed head plant growth regulators are used for seed head suppression on uh, on poa annua quite commonly. Do you I, I, and I know you know a lot about uh, making healthy grass and about suppressing growth. Do you also know about seed head suppression and the role of plant growth regulators in that? Um, more in the cool season environment. So I'm going to defer any seed control for the warm season grasses. Uh, just haven't you? had the experience and I don't really want to, uh, thank you. So who do I want, who do I need to talk to about that? Who's the best person for warm season? Cause I, mm. I've seen like, there's really, you look at like uh proxy what's the active ingredient in proxy uh, athafon athafon mm -hmm. you look at the effect of athafon on uh zoysia seed head suppression and there's uh like conflicting research um yeah that's what i've so seen it's like too. i absolutely can't recommend that because some people applied it the uh and the photos are shocking where they applied athafon there were way more seed heads yeah, I think um, I don't really know who's doing that research. And if someone hears, I apologize if they're doing good work there. I just don't know who that who that person is off the top of my head. Um, I know there's still some work um, in the in the cool season world of optimizing. I think these late fall applications of Ethafon have really helped out um, mm -hmm. to get much better seed head control from any seed heads that are developing late fall, early winter. Um, so a big proponent of that. And then my sequential apps um, in the spring, um, we use growing degree day models for the first one. And then we also use a growing degree day model, 200 growing degree days for the second one, which is generally around two to three weeks in most climates when their first one's going down. Um, but on the warm season side, I don't have good information, unfortunately. Yeah, it's, it's interesting uh, because in, in a tropical environment, where the day lengths don't vary much with a grass like zoysia in in the u.s even in in the far southern parts of the continental u.s um, that's quite far from the equator and so the day length varies quite a bit so you get mm -hmm. long days in the summer where the grass can't it, it zoysia grasses won't produce seed heads when the days are long and then so you you only get seed head production in the autumn if the temperatures are still warm enough when the temperatures uh, when the day links uh come back under 12 hours per day and but the seed heads are formed then but they often won't show in the autumn because the temperatures are too cold and then they show in the springtime when the temperatures warm up but then as soon as the temperatures warm up the day links are quickly 13 14 hours a day and you don't have seed heads anymore so in in zoysia in in the united states it's just like you sometimes see a little bit in the autumn and then you get this spring flush and then that's that's it it's over with but you mm -hmm. get closer to the equator and suddenly you have a large part of the year where you've got both the two things that you need for zoysia seed heads are high temperatures and short days 
And as you get closer to the equator, you end up either with year-round seed head production or you end up with seed head production that can can last for four months or five months. And and uh, a lot of the Asian varieties of zoysia grasses that are used here don't have so much seed head production. But the ones that are bred in the U.S. and then they, they're bred in the U.S., they're evaluated in the, in the U.S. in these places that have this type of long day in the summer, short day in the winter type of phenomenon or, or type of climate and day length. So they, they, it's, um, the seed heads are not such an issue, but then you come plant it closer to the equator and some of these varieties seem to have a lot more seed heads. So it's interesting. I'm, I'm interested to know like why that happens and, uh, how it can be reduced. I talked to, I asked Ambika Chandra, Dr. Yeah. Chandra, uh, about that and actually wanted to do a ATC office hours with her. And, uh, maybe I will try again and see if she's available. Cause I think she, she would know about this pretty well. Yeah, I would guess definitely. And that's in her expertise area for sure. So, all right. Well, Dr. Kreuzer, I think we've, we've talked a little bit longer. How long does it take you to mow greens? If you would listen to this episode would it would that be a, a one acre green mow? yeah uh, we would be about done so uh i'd be up washing right now be soaking wet uh <laughs> trying to, <laughs> to get get on to the next job but and i appreciate you having me um i think instead of having my own podcast i'll just join yours if you ever need me just give me a call and uh i appreciate the opportunity to have to talk about our research to talk about how Greenkeeper is helping to use some of our, our models um, to give confidence. Ultimately, it's a decision support tool. It's there just to help make the right decision. Um, and so uh, I'm excited about how people have been signing up and uh, supporting our small little six person company um, and ultimately help that we're improving the turf grass quality uh, golf courses and sports fields uh, around the world. So thank you. All right. Well, thank you for joining me on relatively short notice and for answering so many of my questions. And I hope a lot of the viewers and uh, listeners will also uh, have some of these same questions that uh, you have clarified the answers for them. So this is, is certainly an interesting topic. And I'm glad that that uh, you also see such a value in uh, clipping volume and just knowing what the growth rate is and then using growth regulators as a tool to achieve that. And, uh, so yeah, I think probably I'll try to blog about that some this year and, uh, talk with a lot of the people that I work with, uh, to make sure that they're getting the most effective use of their growth regulators. So in the show notes, the show description, you will be able to find all kinds of links to, my website asianturfgrass.com to bill's twitter account to the blog post that we started off talking about um, to some of the research articles to the greenkeeper app and so on thanks a lot bill and thanks everyone for listening and i will now sign off for atc from yantikau thailand i am michael woods bye-bye